And now it's time for the Fiasco Family Movie Night. And welcome to episode 58 of Fiasco Family Movie Night. I'm Tim Leonard. And I'm Sean Frost. And for a change of pace, we're doing one of my movies this time. The Randomizer did four in a row for Sean, and for their sins, they are now going to discuss Starship Troopers from 1997, screenplay by Ed Neumeyer, based on the book by Robert A. Heinlein, and directed by Paul Verhoeven. If I'd known it would come to this, I would have uh, bribed the randomizer to let you in earlier. <laughs> oh, I'm sure I have other stuff that'll tick you off over the course of, of the uh, season, but that's okay. You made me watch Hudson Hawk. I really did. Yep. So, Starship Troopers. Gosh, it sounds exciting. What's it about? Well, I'm glad you asked, Tim, because I happen to have here a short little essay on okay. what this movie is all about. Johnny Rico is a lunatic. The end. Oh, well, glad that's settled. Yeah. Okay. So the somewhat longer version. Having safely served in the U.S. Navy between the world wars, Beloved sex-obsessed science fiction writer Robert A. Heinlein penned a novel about soldiers wearing power armor fighting alien bugs in cramped tunnels in order to earn the full rights of citizenship. Floating around Hollywood for years as a potential film, once Heinlein's death removed his objections to Edward Neumeyer's treatment of the story, it got produced in spectacular Gorovision, with a decade's worth of Nickelodeon's goop budget getting all over the nice fascist outfits. The story of the movie goes something like this. The whitest kids in Buenos Aires decide that being horribly mutilated in space combat is their path to a shiny future in the oppressor class. Our lead is meathead Johnny Rico, who excels at dating Carbon Ibanez, the most popular high achiever in school. Trouble is on the horizon, though, as Carmen meets a rival school's sports ball hero, and he's going to flight school with her. Undeterred, Johnny joins up with the mobile infantry, which specializes in getting wiped the hell out by bugs. Their creepy pal Carl stops mentally controlling his ferret to enter the intelligence branch. Johnny rises quickly in meat grinding training until he receives the inevitable Dear Johnny videogram from Carmen. Off his game, he gets another recruit horrifically splattered during a live ammo exercise. Despite getting to remain in training while a woman of color is quickly expelled over the incident, Johnny decides that without the love of Carmen, there's no reason to go feed himself to the bugs. Within seconds, the bugs destroy Buenos Aires, and Johnny decides he has to stay and avenge Carl's ferret or something. Off we go to watch Johnny's regiment get destroyed. 
He is reported dead, although he does spend several days mostly dead. This is an absolutely unimportant plot beat, as Carmen had already dumped him. But we get to see Casper Van Dien float in the healing tank, so there's that. When he and his much-reduced crew of friends return to service, they find that they're now reporting to their old teacher, the one who tricked them all into signing up! Yay! A mission or two later, I genuinely lost track of how many suicide runs these mopes went on. No one is left to lead except Johnny. Oh, and Carmen shows up somewhere in here. She's dating that rival sports doer from the beginning. Already overlong, we now have to watch Johnny lead his troops into a death trap to find the bug who's telling the other bugs what to do. But wait! Carmen's ship went down, and someone has to rescue her. Will the brain bug be captured alive? Will Carmen miraculously survive and even more miraculously get back with Johnny? Has Carl moved up to mind-controlling people? When did Jake Busey get here? So, Tim? Yes. Other than revenge for <laughs> Hudson Hawk or spite. <laughs> uh yeah, why why are why are we talking about Starship Troopers? Do you like bug monsters? Do I? I, I like bug monsters. Uh we're we're watching this one because it's year 3 and you know all the movies <laughs> I desperately desperately wanted to talk about were in year 1 and year 2. And now we're at the point where it's like, hey, I bet we could get a pretty good hour out of this rather than, oh, my God, have you seen the spook who sat by the door? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's a brutally funny satire. It's a feature length sick joke. Uh, it's got some what I believe to be some some viciously intentional satire about the the inherent fascism of action movies. And it's it's a divisive film. It's uh, I've taken to describing Fiasco Family Movie Night as my friend Sean and I, we uh, we talk for an hour articulating about what we love about movies that generally don't get a lot of love. Starship Troopers generally does not get a lot of love. True. Yes. So I I really think it's an interesting movie, perhaps more than a good one. But it also sometimes stumbles into greatness. And there's that shot where two people get hosed down by bug lava and just melt on screen. That's also very true. <laughs> we'll get the we'll get to the awesomeness of the gore <laughs> later on, I'm sure. Uh, how could we not? As you said, this started out as a novel, and I did a, a you know the usual bare minimum of wiki surfing before we did this. Uh, the novel was written as a reaction to President Eisenhower halting nuclear tests. What? Yeah. Uh, the guy who commanded the, the armies of the allies in World War II and saved Western democracy from fascism was apparently just a little bit too much of a pinko peacenik for Robert Heinlein to deal with. Wow. Yeah. And, and literally the John Birch society was saying at the same time that, you know, obviously this guy can't be trusted. He's too much of a wimpy leftist. Wow. Yes. And, and as you'd also pointed out, uh, 
Heinlein served in the Navy, but in between both world wars. So yes, he was on a boat taking orders and doing stuff, but nobody was shooting at him the entire time. Yes. So he wrote Starship Troopers more or less as a love letter of about military service when he'd never really been to war. Uh, more on that later when I talk <laughs> about a different book. We'll get there, dear listeners, both of you. So it's it's this I think it's an extremely misinterpreted movie, and I think it's easy to see it as a dumb film. But I think it's stupid like a fox. <laughs> and part of that is that the book, which uh, I believe you've also read. Yeah, I, yeah. I honestly, um, I, I was a huge Heinlein fan as uh, many teenagers yeah. are. <laughs> well, if, I mean, if you were a dweeb, yep, chances are you came across some of this stuff. It won the Hugo in 1960, I believe. Like, it, it is a very well-respected book. Uh, people dug it, but it's also basically How to Make a Jarhead, the novel about this kid signing up for military service, seeing hundreds of people die all around him, and then learning that that's swell. Yes, there was actually uh, Dark Horse had the comic rights for it for a little while. And Warren Ellis wrote like a, a prequel to the movie in which one of the psychics gets in touch with a bug mind and then goes insane because the only thing the bug is capable of thinking about is either eating or mating with stuff. So his, his brain gets wiped and overridden with the desire to either eat or hump anything. <laughs> I hope I remember that when we get to um, discussing the sequels. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, there's there are some people who who view the source material as a fascist text. I don't know if I would go full bore fascist, but I would definitely say rabidly John Birch anti-communist to the point where there is a line in the novel that the insect civilization has perfected communism. Like he, he's not, it's not subtext, it's text. The bugs are commies. Commies, I tells ya. Star, I mean, Starship Troopers is a pretty darn well-written book. Uh, before YA was a publishing category, Heinlein wrote a bunch of what he called his juveniles. And mm -hmm. his publishers, I think it was Scribner, didn't accept this one. They're like, no. So he actually ended his relationship with them and got published elsewhere. Hmm. So, like, this did mean something to him. It did. It was an important thing in his career, and it was an important thing in his oeuvre. I'm sorry, that was too French. It was an important thing in his catalog. <laughs> what I most remember as as a positive from it, and I think, like, like a lot of people whose works are... Um, read differently nowadays. <laughs> I think there's a mixture of, of things going on in there. Uh, and, you know, you don't have to throw it all away, but I don't encourage anyone to go looking if they haven't. There's a lot of bathwater. Yeah. The bathwater uh, um, to baby ratio is pretty bad. But I will say that the one aspect of it that that I think was still just really like a terrific war um, kind of setting 
was exactly what got expunged from the movie, which was um, power-armored soldiers in cramped tunnels against uh, against these, uh, you know, bugs. These perfect <laughs> communists who do human wave attacks. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, wonder well, what, wonder he, who he was writing about. He was absolutely not the the first or only writer to to fall into that cheap uh, tactic of oh we'll use bugs to stand in for the commies because they can't yeah. think. Yep. <laughs> they just follow orders. Now get down in that tunnel and start murdering. That they just follow orders. That's why in every communist society, uh, you have people, um, you know, staging coups because yes. they're so good because at they only in follow- line. Yes. <laughs> now, if you excuse me, I'm off to represent the entire Red Army at the buffet. <laughs> it's it's one of those things. Like when I first saw the movie, uh, I didn't get it at all i resented that the power armor wasn't there i yep. delighted in the gore yep. uh this this movie kind of does the evil dead 2 thing of well if it's bright green or bright orange it's not blood is it yes did they have any bright blue goop getting splopped on anybody i think it was just green and orange you know i i lost track um this movie takes about 12 years to watch <laughs> I see we're we're in the the uh, the that type of episode where one of us liked it much more than the other one did. I I think it's a goddamn mess. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I I would never argue that. And, and not just the visuals. Um mm. I think that there is a lot to enjoy in it. I think it's a really enjoyable mess. Um it's certainly much more entertaining than some better made films that I've seen, <laughs> which have won Oscars. Yeah, um, I, well, you know, they tend to go for most acting, not best. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, there is a ton of spectacle in this. There, there were thousands of extras for some of the, the scenes and, lo- you know, lots of really cool desert, uh, desert backgrounds and scenery. And, really great special effects the the bugs hold up pretty darn well 24 years later there's not a lot of cgi from a quarter century ago that still looks great there's not there's some stuff from 10 years ago that looks embarrassing yeah yeah and these still look pretty good yeah more on that when we go to the dtv sequels um (laughs) <laughs> but uh, do you so, want to know more? <laughs> do you, would you like to know more? Ask me about the DTV sequels. Please, please do. Um, it's on the agenda. So, you know, it's an adaptation of something where the the process of adapting it makes it a reaction to the text more than a straight adaptation of it, I would say. Uh, rem- I mean, let us remember that Paul Verhoeven was a a child, like a toddler up through maybe a six or seven year old in Nazi occupied Holland. So he's fully aware of what life under fascism looks like. And he's fully aware of what bombing raids look like up close. Uh, Apparently next door or next door neighbors, or at least very close neighbors were killed in an allied bombing raid. 
that he's he's aware that when there's that much firepower flying around, it you know intent doesn't always matter. You can hurt somebody and you can kill somebody completely by accident. They're just as hurt or dead. Yup. Yeah, that is one thing I, I absolutely will say for Verhoeven is that he no no matter the quality of his work, <laughs> uh, he does not have a sort of um, obeisance to authority. Um. He does not. <laughs> and and it is that sort of thing that by by adapting it and by turning it into a satire of the meathead mentality of, well, let's go out there and win this sucker by being more awesome. Like you can be really awesome. You're outnumbered a thousand to one and your enemy is bulletproof. I don't care how awesome you are. And it would be nice if the, uh, the command staff, if the sky marshals cared about that, but they didn't. No. <laughs> uh, one of the other things in the satire that I noticed, like they put up, censored over some things happening but when they showed all the dead bodies after the uh the the failed attack on planet p and on the mormon colony that also got destroyed by the arachnids there's just there's like severed limbs and torsos and bodies and brains and gore everywhere that this was like you know, this is fine primetime viewing. Enjoy this news bulletin of yes. everybody. Everybody is completely fucking super dead. <laughs> now sports. Would you like to know more? Would you like to? Yeah. Would you like to know gore? <laughs> I I think just an accident of timing is one of the reasons that I didn't really get this movie. I did see it on opening night because I was excited to see the power armor. <laughs> sucker how did that go for tim 1997 was a little bit too early for the satire to land because so much of it looks so much like america promising to win the iraq war mm -hmm. you know we're gonna turn the corner it's hard work i uh, you know the freedman unit of oh yes the next six months will be critical and he said that for something like nine and a half years the the idea that all we're being shown is I'm doing my part, let's go win, and then getting massacred over and over. It's basically space Afghanistan. Yeah, there's certainly, you know, when I think back on that context of when it came out, it's a lot like if we put out something um critical of the second Bush's attacks on mm -hmm. <laughs> or the second Bush's invasion of Iraq in, I don't know, January of uh, <laughs> 2002, you know, yeah, <laughs> it's, it, it was not going to get a big favorable box office on release. <laughs> not so much. No. I think it plays out a lot like if David Reese wrote a, a comic called Get Your Bug War on. <laughs> but there's a lot of things like the constantly changing graphics for the FedNet communications that, you know, they, oh, well, we've got to make this visually interesting. So it's like it says war, but the word has like flames burning in it. Uh, yeah, they have after the massacre on Planet P, they have the really somber logo. 
things like that, where it's constantly changing. And that I, I think you can draw a straight line from the news broadcasts in RoboCop to this. This would have been yeah. about 10 years after. And they it's something that Verhoeven is obviously very interested in and and his collaborators are obviously very interested in. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the things that really works fine. They have that, you know, cable debate show where there's just one guy going, I think that idea is preposterous and stupid and I'm done. Like yes. that's that's the extent of what you get for for supporting his his claims. And they found a guy who looks like a goofus and they put a dumb bow tie on him and they had him there to be wrong. And you look at him and you know he's supposed to be wrong. I mean, a lot of the stuff in in this that I think is inarguably intended as satire plays like a a remarkably less subtle Romero. Oh, yes. Man, now I'm kind of wishing George Romero had a chance to adapt this. <laughs> and and uh, I I think it I I think that comparison only goes so far as like the commercials and the you know anytime you're getting the TV content, including the the footage that that starts the movie and then we catch up to right. of the the initial assault on Planet P. Where, you know, you get this idiot while while soldiers are fleeing around him, yammering to the news crew because the yes. public has to know. The public has a right to know. <laughs> Thud. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And pretty much the every cast member that we've seen in the training scenes winds up ripped in half during that like three minute section. Yeah, there's like one person maybe two who mm-hmm. uh, but i think only one person who's introduced to us in training uh, makes it off of planet yeah. p yeah <laughs> pretty much the other final survivors were either people who had been uh there all along or uh from buenos aires or had uh you know been later people who rose quickly through the ranks for right. simply not dying the dead man's <laughs> shoes method of promotion <laughs> fill those shoes okay <laughs> sir there's blood in them sir yes and yours will be in there soon enough get going <laughs> yeah and and the training scenes are like the training scenes in a lot of military movies except again there's lots of sick jokes in there The thing about, you know, throwing a knife through somebody's hand as a way to explain that, no, you're going to do it. And and the running gag of yelling for a medic. Medic! (laughs) Medic! And I I have to say, Clancy Brown as the drill sergeant is absolutely perfect. That's a casting decision that belongs on the Sistine Chapel ceiling. (laughs) He's so, so perfect. He exactly role. matches the vibe of the movie <laughs> because he knows it's his job to be the, the bellowing lunatic who, who will whip these wimps into shape and they will be real men and women to go fight the bug war. And, and so he does, he is just exactly as over the top as he needs to be. And, and when you compare the scenes in that that sec- in that segment are when I really started twigging this time to, yeah, there is 
there is more satire going on here than I initially gave it credit for because this reads as the sort of parody, gory parody of war movies. You know, you, you get this sequence of events of the screw up at home, gets in training, has some mess ups, but makes friends and uh, something terrible happens and, and they have to go to war. But where most of these types of movies, there's one war scene at the end and a couple people die. But, you know, the, the hero is like, yes, this is the life for me. Mm -hmm. That's why the pacing on this one, I think, feels so weird to me is because after that, he's declared dead. He's he's stuck in a healing tank. He comes out and then there's almost an additional movie where now we are going to go get the brain bug. Right. <laughs> um and so it makes for kinds of kind of clumsy pacing, but I do think that that adds to the sort of undermining of your standard war film where it's like War is hell, and we're going to do it again. And we get to go back. Yeah. <laughs> and we're going to win this time. Oh, we totally got our asses kicked. But we're yeah. going to win this but time. We're oh, gonna we got win. our asses we kicked need, again. We need you to help us win. Oh, ooh. Oh. <laughs> Can we get another guy? <laughs> I'd, I'd like to raise a point that I haven't really seen addressed in a lot of the the criticism I've seen of this film. And that's that I think it's supposed to be more or less an artifact from the society that it's depicting. It's not supposed to be a Hollywood movie from 1997. It's supposed to be a movie produced by the FedNet to get people to join the mobile infantry in 22, whatever. Mm -hmm. That, that what we're seeing is more or less the, the mobile infantry equivalent of Top Gun. Top Gun apparently had a lot of people want to join the Air Force because it made being in the Air Force look totally awesome. <laughs> and as we've said over and over, this is In ways that about... Coleman Francis did not achieve. Indeed. <laughs> so... So what we have is the story of a meathead who's bad at everything, whose parents think he's dumb for trying to do this, who becomes awesome by joining the bug war. And there's a couple moments in the film where a non-white character will tell him, you can't do the thing. And then he'll go do the thing and they'll say, wow, you really did the thing and you're awesome. <laughs> it's, it's the storyline of a children's book for white supremacists. Which yeah. essentially Starship Troopers was because in 58, uh, America was on paper a white supremacist society and it was written for juvenile readers. There's there's a lot of it where it's very simplistic and very dumbed down because if if you were going to join if this movie was going to convince you to join the Terra Terran mobile infantry, you are a stupid, stupid motherfucker. <laughs> and so they show a dense guy who's good at sports gets somebody killed in training but rises above the problems of him not really being very good at soldiering to be a good soldier 
And there's there's that bit when they're on planet P and like Ace is going, ah, ah, I don't know what to do. I am inferior. And Johnny just goes, shoot that bug and go this way. And like the, the <laughs> tactics are literally walk over there and kill the bug monster. Get them. That's your plan. <laughs> well, it's not an elaborate plan. And and just, you know, all the guns going off and they shoot some of the bugs and then everybody gets run over by the bugs because uh, as as zombie movies often tell you, if you've got 30 bullets and 35 monsters, you're in real trouble. Yep. And if you have a thousand bullets, but 5000 monsters, you're in real trouble. So, yeah, I think that a lot of the things that look ham handed, dull, simplistic, obvious and goony in this are intentionally those things. It's not it's it's a really smart, stupid movie in a way. I I want to believe, Tim. I really do. But I have seen Showgirls. Ha! Um, yeah, but that one was written by, oh, what's his name? Joe Esterhaas? Yeah. 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 So I mean, if you've seen Flesh and Blood, you've seen the de-glamorization of violence and nobility. And if you've mm -hmm. seen Robocop, you've seen ultra-violence and media satire. Mm -hmm. It's I. You can argue whether or not it was successfully achieved in this but i don't think you can argue that he wasn't trying yeah and the the fact that um newmeyer was co-writer on uh robocop certainly lends credence to that um because i think R robocop was one of those rare occasions where everything just came together and worked Oh, yeah. Um, and I think it was clearly intended to be the movie that it turned out to be. Um, this, I'm less certain about uh, intent getting through. Um, yeah, I could see that. But um, but also, like, you know, if you look at the uh, the credits for Newmeyer and uh, for, the, uh, I'm blanking on his name at the moment, but uh, his co-writer from RoboCop, Mm -hmm. Like the most significant things they did were RoboCop and Anaconda mo movies. So we're not looking at people who really had a kind of consistent output. So maybe they had only a couple great ideas. Right. Or, or and here's where I put the tinfoil hat on, mm -hmm. maybe their other ideas just can't get made entirely possible. So, I mean, there is that, but I, I do want to return to uh, your theory uh, about the, the film being uh, in media res as it were. Boo, sir. <laughs> uh, and one of the things that, uh, that strikes me as fascinating, if you go down that line is the fact that you, if, if you start thinking that way, you can also start thinking about other ramifications of that, which probably, which may get us further and further away from, from, uh, authorial, uh, directorial intent, but it, it may be a fun Death exercise. of the author, my friend, let's do this. As a writer, I say, fuck you. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> but here's what I'm thinking in mm -hmm. response, which is 
that the sheer fact that, you know, this is a big event. Like, if you are genuinely having a war on bugs and it's going poorly and you need to make a propaganda film, you know, putting in something about, and then we find the brain bug and now we will turn the corner seems like too much of a risk to be lying about. Mm. But it does seem like something that you could overstate. Yes. The importance of that might have really happened. And if you look at that and you're like, well, the story of the guy who actually did it is really not great. But either there was a Johnny Rico or as is more commonly the case in, uh, in fictional accounts of real events, they made Johnny Rico up to fit what they needed right. for the propaganda. Then it's his personal story centered on the events that lead to this great moment. And actually, that that makes me think of something that wouldn't have made any sense in 97. But remember how the number two guy in Al-Qaeda got killed about 60 or 70 times? Yes. Yeah, every time they get a brain bug, they could say, we've found the brain bug. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm not quite on board with, you know, this is, you know, this is a... Uh, movie that is fully in control of itself but uh i certainly am you know if if you have a lever that that if, or let's say you have a switch and the switch is um actually pro-fascist or satire this is clearly satire yes um, <laughs> it's satire that kind of shows how dumb fascism is on top of all the other things that you shouldn't like about it Yes, because you yeah. cannot you cannot make a movie like this and expect people to, people to go, yeah, I want to be fucked up by a bug. Right, <laughs> right. Do you want to know more? No, I want to get fucked up by a bug. <laughs> and and one that does the do you want to know more, the thing that you know more, the thing that it gives you is still under the control of the, the Terran Federation. Yes. You know, there's no extra information there, anything other than what they want to give you. Yes. Uh, Would you like have, more propaganda? Yes. <laughs> they have that little science break where they show, you know, the bugs are throwing meteors from their star to ours on the other end of the galaxy, where it's like, yes, 20 seconds of rational thought about that will let you know that's not what's going on. But yes. that's the explanation for the meatheads they want to join up is bugs, chuck rocks. <laughs> And they even have a commercial for how the defenses are blowing meteors out of the sky more now. <laughs> but not over Buenos Aires, apparently. Well, I, I mean, again, talking more about the post 9-11 and, and all that, uh, the idea that the devastation of Buenos Aires is what propels them into the, the forever war against the bugs. What if Buenos Aires was an inside job? <laughs> because oh no you have a yarn board don't you <laughs> no not yet but but i could but the idea that you know a big rock from elsewhere landed on the city and broke stuff uh i mean the the math you'd need to throw a meteor from the bugs home planet of clindathu all the way to earth and hit anything i mean they 
they'd stand a two to one chance of landing it in the ocean and then they could just steam clean the whole planet. Yeah. But yeah, just the idea of doing that, it's a little bit like flicking a grain of rice off your finger from the top of the Sears Tower in Chicago and knocking out a particular window in one moving subway car in New York City. (laughs) So something's definitely up and you can't take what they're saying at face value. And the idea of it being, you know, a piece of fascist art from a fascist society, then you can't take any of that at face value. So no. it, the, the mere fact that the tactics are idiotic beyond belief, like they'd have to smart, get smarter to merely be stupid and that the science doesn't work at all makes sense. It's, dare I say, it's a feature, not a, not bug. a bug. Oh, you bastard. <laughs> <laughs> So, I mean, are there other reasons you think it flopped? Science fiction, like, occasionally you get a mega hit science fiction movie. Star Wars is massive. The Matrix was massive. And then had some sequels that were less so. But, I mean, who really talks about The Matrix 20 years on, 25 years on? I think, like, Robocop was a big smash. Total Recall was a big smash. So people were ready for that sort of thing. But those were... Movies about righteous retribution, where the weightlifter with a machine gun or the the cyborg do the thing and succeed. And this is more a movie about failure, loss, and incompetence. Yes, gross incompetence. Yeah, you know, and and I think that's just something that doesn't really resonate with American audiences as much. Uh, I mean, The Walking Dead's been on for like 11 or 12 years now, and that's always, we must dominate the weak people we've met because otherwise the important strong people are at risk. You know, Blade Runner was a classic and it flopped. Tron flopped. There's a lot of science fiction that hits the floor where stuff like this is just sort of like, and nobody liked it. But but I think it's gone from being like a, a bomb to a critically reappraised masterpiece without ever actually being a success. <laughs> now I, I would, I would vehemently argue against masterpiece, but, um, mm. or at least neglected and misunderstood text. Yeah. Uh, I, I do think that sarcasm in general and satire in particular is a really tough thing uh, to explain to American audiences um, because you can be as overt as possible and people are going to be like, but you said, yeah. And it's like, wow, that was totally rad. All the bugs got blowed up. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, but I do think that they, they do that they can sense. So you get the people who don't get it, who are like this, this, was nonsense this was just gibberish this was this weird pro-military garbage uh you get people who are like hey this like we we won in the end but like i don't know i feel kind of funny about it it's like why are they acting like it's great when like everyone just got brutally slaughtered did they have to show all that gore you know, did they have to make war look horrible and and violent? Um, 
Yeah, and there's he, there's a really tiny Venn diagram of like all the things you need to understand for this movie to land the way they wanted it to. Yeah. And then you get me who's just like, I'm not sure if it's good if, if it's good or bad, but like I really <laughs> I really laugh at, at, at how horrible the infantry tactics are <laughs> against yes. swarms of giant bugs. <laughs> Well, bullets don't work, so we're going to stand two feet away from it and keep firing. Well, no, as as the little info, infomercial thing said, you have to shoot it in the brain case. They were going for the legs. <laughs> uh, and and part of the, you know, the overall fascist aesthetic of the film, I mean, the costumes are basically SS uniforms. All the officers are basically in the SS. Apparently, one of the like an executive after a screening said, why does the why do the heroes flags look like a Nazi flag? And and Verhoeven said, no, 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 it's green and blue. <laughs> and apparently they bought it. <laughs> I mean, sometimes people just don't notice the really obvious thing. But like the score is so brass heavy and doom laden. Uh I've heard it described as music to invade Poland by. <laughs> and and I have to say, Klendathu Drop, it's like a four and a half minute chunk of the score. I think that might be my single favorite piece of film music. Uh, it's it's either that or Football Fight by Queen from Flash Gordon. <laughs> that that having that Basil Polidurus, you know, this is what I want to do. And and he also did the score for Robocop. So he he is a frequent collaborator with uh with paul verhoven you know i realized i've said collaborator a couple times on a, a podcast about a, <laughs> a text depicting a fascist society i didn't mean it like that i meant it like the other way death of the author here we go eastern michigan university vichy scum yeah pretty much <laughs> so that's just the, I, I didn't want to go by without mentioning that the score is absolutely astonishing so there's that too. Well, I I think we we might be getting a new transmission in from uh, from Sky Marshal to Hotmaru. Yes, yes, uh, we're being commanded that we have to roll some film clips. Oh, all right. Well, I suppose the public would like to mow more. They, I bet they would. The aftermath of Buenos Aires' destruction was actually footage of an out-of-control firestorm in Oakland Hills and Berkeley, California, in 1991. Oh, dear. During the filming of the tanker bug scene, where Johnny Rico kills a massive insect monster with a grenade, Casper Van Dien chipped two of his teeth and cracked three ribs. Folks, kids, do not try to bronco bust a bomber bug. I hear you kill bugs good. <laughs> More ammunition was fired during the production of Starship Troopers than any other movie up to that point in history. I refuse. Well, I don't know. I might believe that. When was Guns of El Chupacabra filmed? <laughs> <laughs> After that. And yeah, it's just that they had so many extras and so many extras firing stuff during the big planetary combat scenes. Wow. Yeah. The body armor for Federation troopers was reused on the television series Firefly. Yeah, when they call them purpabellies, somebody just basically painted the armor purple and that was the Imperial, you know, gear. Oh dear. Yeah. <laughs> 
Uh, Dina Meyer smacking Casper Van Dien's head during the football huddle was unscripted, and his reaction to it is genuine. It was his best acting in the film, I have to say. <laughs> he was method pissed. <laughs> Some of the bug designs were adapted from unused concepts for Tremors 2. Phil Tippett, the effects supervisor, was working on that film and Starship Troopers simultaneously. You know, if you only got the one sketch pad. <laughs> Casper Van Dien, Dina Meyer, and Patrick Muldoon were all 29 years old during filming, playing high school seniors. <laughs> Patrick Muldoon did not look a day over 50. Yeah, yeah, I thought it was very convincing in a Hollywood has no idea what 17-year-olds look like way. Jake Busey learns to play the violin for this movie. And I have to say, I've I've forgot to mention it. I love little touches in this movie, like Jake Busey playing the the real the more meathead than Rico meathead. Yes. Plays the violin. And he plays I mean, Dixie, so it is the Confederate white supremacist anthem. True. Yeah. So it's just <laughs> I just love the idea of Jake Busey taking violin lessons. It just and and he did fine. <laughs> Uh, speaking of music, the singer of the band at that high school dance is Zoe Polidorus, the daughter of score composer Basil Polidorus. Due to several mass battle sequences, over 1,400 extras appear in the film. And if each one of them fires 100 bullets, there you go. <laughs> the British Board of Film Classification gave the film a 15 rating in theaters, but revised it to an adults-only classification for home video release. Honestly, fair. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Edward Neumeyer, the screenwriter, has a cameo as the murderer whose execution will be televised that evening after the film. His character would have been arrested, tried, convicted, and executed in less than 18 hours, which gives the viewer a look at the Federation justice system. <laughs> Paul Verhoeven directed the co-ed shower scene while nude as a way to pacify the actors that had to be naked on set for a prolonged period of time. The director of the Canyons did that, too, in order to pacify exactly one star. Yep, there you have it. <laughs> I think he said his cinematographer was raised in a nudist colony and didn't care either. So it's, you know, two middle-aged dudes setting up the shot, swinging merrily in the breeze, and then all the actors. The blind biology teacher in the bug dissection scene was played by Golden Girls actress Rue McClanahan. Wasn't she in a Francis Coleman movie? She may well have been. Uh, speaking of people you wouldn't necessarily expect to be in Starship Troopers, Seth Gilliam, who plays Sugar Watts Watkins, going out on the line, I'm just trying to kill some bugs, sir, also portrayed Ellis Carver for all 60 episodes of The Wire. Oh, there, there are some brilliant bad lines in this. <laughs> The novel Starship Troopers has been featured in the Marine Corps Professional Reading Program since the program's inception in 1988. They want to promote reading? <laughs> well, I mean, tactics, log logistics, whether or not it's a good idea to get shot for your country. 
I'm yeah, sure that that, I'm sense. sure they have a reading list. I'm positive we wouldn't like most of the things on it. <laughs> but I bet if I told the Marine Corps, hey, you should really read 16 Ways to Defend a Walled City by K.J. Parker. It's totally boss. They would just go, no. <laughs> so as is our the Fiasco family tradition, we asked our, our peeps in the podcasting universe and beyond a question tangentially related to the film under discussion, which was, friends, we are heading into the virtual recording booth in a few days, and we'd like to know your recommendations for a film that features several monsters or creatures of different types. Lisa Mary gives us Night of the Lepus for a swarm of giant killer rabbits and Clash of the Titans for a combo pack including Calibus, Medusa, Giant Scorpions, a Giant Vulture, and of course, the Kraken. Heck yeah. Uh, Gavin R.R. Smith goes with the Black Scorpion, which also has a really giant scorpion in it. Also a cave full of strange bugs. He also mentions Ghoulies 2 with several small monsters and then one big one at the end. Uh, yeah, uh, Black Scorpion also has uh, one of my favorite monsters in it, which is a reappearance of uh, the cave spider uh, from King Kong. Mm. Uh, Willis O'Brien still had the um, still had the model. Uh, so we finally get to see it in motion since that scene got oh, cut and fantastic. lost forever from King Kong. Fantastic. Yeah, and uh, you know, King Kong also had lots of different creatures in it, and and that really cool but doesn't really fit the narrative. Bad news for ten minutes at the bottom of the ravine in uh, the Peter Jackson version. There's a lot of horrible ways to check out in that scene. Yes, uh, Adam Clark of It's Just a Show and a part of our Scaritage Network mates at Megaphonic.fm. Adam, I say, wants to put In the Mouth of Madness on the board. Pig cops, axe wielders with deformed eyes, and at least one Lovecraftian entity. He follows that up with Rankin Bass and Toho Studios co-production. You heard that right. <laughs> King Kong Escapes, which has a giant ape, a giant robot duplicate of that ape, a giant snake, and a perfectly normal-sized giant allosaurus. <laughs> I love that movie, that movie so much. So loopy. That's so, <laughs> we'll be year year something or other. We're gonna go over King Kong escapes. If 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 even only for hubris, Ween, like yeah. it has to show up at some point. Oh, it's a way to avoid the word killer in the the K title. <laughs> Rich Conroy of Alt, uh, Science Patrol, the Ultraman podcast lists Abbott and Costello meets Frankenstein with a four-pack of creatures, the Frankenstein monster, Dracula, the Wolfman, and a paradoxical appearance from the Invisible Man. And also destroy all monsters with a Toho Studios roster going from the All-Stars to a very deep bench. And I believe that giant Allosaurus shows up again. Both, uh, yeah, both great films. Uh, I will convert you to Abbott and Costello meets Frankenstein. I've just never saw it because none of the video stores had it and none of it never showed up on Son of Sven Gulli. I'm I'm perfectly open to watching it. I just haven't seen it yet. Chris Puma of the podcasts It's Just a Show and The Spouter Inn, also uh, on the Megaphonic Network, says he's never actually seen Alien vs. Predator, but that's got both creatures in it. 
And the incredibly dire sequel has a Predalien hybrid monster in it, too. Uh, yeah, AVP, that's that's a movie. Never saw the first one. Went to see the second one because it was it was like, oh, hey, hey, they're on Earth. How bad could it be? Turned out to be Return of the Living Dead storyline, except everybody lives. So Return yeah. of the Living Dead for dummies, basically. That happens a lot. Yeah. So uh, if you really want to get turbo pissed, watch uh, Creepies. Okay. Which is a no budget ripoff of Return of the Living Dead, except there's science spiders. Oh. And the highlight, the highlight, I tell you, is a brief appearance by uh, the hedgehog. Okay. So yeah. I'll be watching Abbott and Costello meets Frankenstein anyway. Yes. <laughs> Eric J. Peterson takes us to the 80s with Night of the Creeps, which has an axe murderer, aliens, zombie frat boys, and brain slugs. Depending on which cut of the film you're watching, it may also contain a zombie dog. Oh, yeah. That's, I like that ending. Yeah. <laughs> well, Both of course, are of good, course you have to do the it's not over ending. It's yeah. a, a pastiche of movies in which they had the it's not over ending. <laughs> Dearly love that movie. Uh, brand new commentator Luke Blair went with Pacific Rim, which is full of different but similar looking kaiju and vastly different looking giant robots. Heck yeah. Hell yeah. Have I need seen... to give that one another watch. I haven't seen the sequel. I haven't either. Uh, I'm terribly interested because, Ooh, as you we, know, we should I'm hubris wean it. For... What? We should hubris wean it. Neither one of us has seen that one. Oh! <laughs> There's we're... P taken care of. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're going to hurt our own feelings. <laughs> Maybe. Sp speaking of P, do you have a movie? <laughs> 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 that uh that has a lot of monsters in it <laughs> i certainly do although i have to say this one's a little slow for about the first 15 seconds <laughs> that's right it's inframan which has twin robots a woman wearing booty shorts who has eyeballs that shoot lasers in the center of her hands princess dragon mom a bug creature that grows huge a, a skull kudzu monster and a lumpy dude with a shovel for one hand and a drill for the other hand and a massive amount of of skull ar skeleton armored cannon fodder who just basically gets slapped around by the normal characters and then they call in a monster <laughs> oh, and the the sort of Baba Yaga looking thing with the red bodysuit and the giant mane of hair and the uh, the armored like Germanic warrior guy that shoots flames. I thought he had a flamethrowing mustache, but he doesn't. It's just a flamethrower. Oh, there's so many monsters. And Princess Dragon Mom gets decapitated more than once, which is a really neat trick. <laughs> You got to have a backup plan for when your head gets lopped off. Yes. <laughs> nice. That's a really fun one. That's, uh, yeah. <laughs> when that one jumps off, it just keeps jumping. Yes. Yes, indeed. It It really doesn't stop. How about you? Have you got a movie full of lots of different creatures? Oh, boy, do I. Okay. 
Yeah, bear with me. It's called Abbott and Costello. <laughs> Wait. No. Yeah, sometimes, sometimes because we don't publicize what we're going to be saying, other people also say it. <laughs> Alas. Uh, so I'll second that and then move quickly on to, uh, I thought about doing a team of monsters, not like T-E-A-M, team, team. Um, but like T-E-E-M, teeming mm. swarm of monsters. Have you um, considered Starship Troopers? Uh, you know, I've never seen that. Do you want to know more? <laughs> uh, so... I'm going, I decided instead to go with variety. And uh, so this is something we mentioned uh, for, I believe, our Y entry, uh, one hubris ween, uh, which is Yokai Monsters Spook Warfare from 1968, uh, written by Tetsuro Yoshida and directed by Yoshiyuki Kurodo. Uh, it is a hoot um the basic concept of it is that uh uh a bunch of japanese uh paranormal entities are pissed off that a babylonian paranormal entity has invaded their territory as you would be so humanity is saved because the monsters are pissed at each other <laughs> <laughs> lovely uh, so it's awesome uh you've got the babylonian monster itself uh which is pretty cool looking uh yeah it's basically this big green demon in armor but you know then you've got the kind of screw up squad of the the sort of commonly known uh japanese uh folk monsters so you know you've got one that's, you know, a woman with a face on the back of her head. That's a power. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you can bump into things a lot because you're looking the wrong direction. You've got the the main one, which is listed in the American IMDb as River Monster, which... Okay. Um... <laughs> uh but yeah uh he's got water on the top of his head uh -huh. and he jumps around a lot so that's a power yep um <laughs> yes yeah, so you've got one that's uh an umbrella with a tongue and one leg <laughs> so you know watching all all of these try to defeat a monster with actual abilities is oh, kind of man. amazing. Bring in the inferior five doomsday just showed up. <laughs> it's uh, there, there are uh, two other movies uh, in the yokai monsters uh, uh, series, but uh, this is the one where if you want monster action, this is the one to get. This is your breakfast. <laughs> Very cool. So yeah, there. That's a fine, fine collection of all kinds of different monsters and stuff movies. And uh, I think that that about wraps it up. I'm ready to get back into my crippled and on fire and blown up spaceship and go on to another planet for another combat drop. But before I do that, 
Sean, would you be good enough to fire up the randomizer? Because I would like to know more about what our next movie will be. Sure thing. Okay, what do, uh, what do we get? Well, in a completely unprecedented turn of events, the randomizers got one of your movies coming out of it. <laughs> That's right. For those of us keeping score at home, five of the first six movies we are doing are all Sean's. <laughs> this just means that I have to sit and take it at the end of the season. <laughs> Hopefully also at the middle. <laughs> But yes, I, I am looking forward to this one because you really don't get get this sort of thing much anymore with like actual big celebrity level celebrities in a horror movie. But oh, it's which in, one is this? Uh, it's The Devil's Reign. Oh, yes. Ernest Borgnine as the goat. <laughs> Trunky Satan is here to take your soul. Pudgy Satan has got an offer for you. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's it's one of those things like the economics of Hollywood are always that a horror movie that doesn't cost very much money to make can usually make money. This one never spawned a franchise, but it, you know, it's nifty. It has nift. It does have John Travolta in it in an extremely early part. He gets one line of dialogue, so it's possible that he got his Screen Actors Guild card from this one. <laughs> the line of dialogue, by the way, is. Get him. He's a blasphemer. <laughs> Which is a one step below, I can't move. I'm completely paralyzed. <laughs> it also has Ida Lupino in it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> whose uh, brilliant film, The Hitchhiker, we've discussed. Indeed. And William Shatner. Yeah. <laughs> Versus the devil. Give me 10 bucks on Satan. I'm good for it. <laughs> so yeah, next time around, uh, we'll be watching another one of your movies, but it's a really cool one. So I'm okay with that. Cool. Time for me to get back into the uh, medical regeneration tank. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you were listed as dead, but it turns out you just watched Starship Troopers one through three. <laughs> Do you want to know more? Frankly, no, I do not at this point. <laughs> I'm good, thank you. <laughs> Sorted. And while we're thanking people, thank you for listening to this episode of Fiasco Family Movie Night. If you like our podcast, please tell your movie fan friends about us however you can. The Fiasco Family is part of the Megaphonic Network, and you can find us at megaphonic.fm slash fiasco alongside other fancy podcasts, such as A Part of Our Scaritage, which plums the depths of Canadian horror movies. We're also at facebook.com slash podcast because they wouldn't let us change the URL, and on Twitter as at FiascoFamilyPod. If you enjoy the show, consider donating to our Patreon for a dollar a month to get exclusive mini-episodes. Also on our Patreon page for free, totally boss content cut from existing episodes. That's at patreon.com slash Fiasco Brothers, because they also won't let us change it. Or support the network at patreon.com slash Megaphonic. Both options support us, get you access to bonus content, and can give you an invite to a members-only Slack to hang out with all the Megaphonic hosts. 
We'll see you again in a few weeks on our next episode. And again, thank you for listening. It's just like you'd bring Coleman Francis into it. 